0: Hallelujah. Almighty Heavenly Father, we're here to celebrate Your works today. We think of those times in Scriptures where altars were built and worship was offered in the presence of the covenant-keeping God by a repentant people. And there was celebrated at those times Your glorious intervention providing deliverance from Egypt, by way of the exodus, by way of the wilderness to the promised land. There was a recounting of the Red Sea, a counting of your, recounting of your provision in the wilderness, a recounting after great battles of your deliverance, of your strong arm, that served to mightily save your people from your enemies. There was, Lord, in the hearts of just a few, when you came Jesus Christ, to this earth. A recounting of the deeds of the Lord in glorious worship that a Messiah was born, God incarnate, here to dwell. And once again, an altar was established, Lord, as the covenant-keeping God had once again showed Himself powerful and His right arm mighty to save and providing for us a Redeemer, our Paschal Lamb, our Jesus Christ, the once and for all sacrifice And so this morning we pray, Lord, that today in this place would be an altar recognizing the glorious right arm, the conquering might, the forever established kingdom of the Almighty God and His Savior, Jesus Christ, the covenant keeper. And let us be the repentant people who bow before Your Lordship, who celebrate our hope and our freedom and our redemption in You. And now, as we open up your Scriptures, may they be compelling to us. May they draw us close to you and away from sin, that you might be glorified and your kingdom might grow in our hearts and in this land. In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Hallelujah. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 13. In a moment, I'll ask you to stand as we read verses 44 through 58. While you're turning there, a brief introduction to the title of this message this morning, which is Kingdom Priceless. Kingdom Priceless. There's been a series of messages from Matthew 13, which is the section of comparison parables, where Jesus compares the kingdom of God to different things, and there's a group of seven parables And this morning we'll consider two. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure. The kingdom of heaven is like a pearl of great price. So if you are able, stand with me if you would, and we will read Matthew chapter 13 verses 44 through 58. The word of God says to us this morning, The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up, Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. 47. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore... Every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Verse 53, And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there, and coming to his hometown, he taught them in the synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get his wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And are not all his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. You may be seated. Glory to the Lord for the gracious opportunity to open up the Scriptures together this morning and to hold our life and our thinking and everything ultimately and our construct of reality accountable to the immutable truth proclaimed forever in Holy Scripture. The theme of this chapter, the Kingdom of God, is central to our understanding of the Gospel and not just the gospel as we sometimes compartmentalize as the message of salvation limited to something or a segment of the New Testament, but indeed the whole of God's interaction in the affairs of history and beyond, seeds of His redemptive plan and manifest purpose to display His glory from before time began, and it will ultimately flourish and bloom and endure forever in the consummate vision of His future orientation, in which He will be exalted and magnified forever at the close of the age, even as these parables declare at the time when the last sin has been judged ultimately and the last Son of the Kingdom has been ransomed into glory and alongside His angels will give praise to His holy name, worshiping Him and shining like the sun, forever without end. The kingdom of God is priceless. Kingdom priceless. Upon considering in this passage a three-stage escalation describing to us the amplitude, that is, the majestic scope and power of the kingdom of God, we have a pairing of parables we'll consider today that illustrate to us its value. In weeks previous, we discussed kingdom individual. It's perhaps a title you could give to the parable of the sower, which describes for us the conditions of the human heart, the individual, that are implied in the kingdom of God. In other words, what does the kingdom mean for the individual? Well, it depends on the soil of the heart. If the soil of the heart is hard, then it is resistant to the seed of the word of the kingdom. It does not sprout and bloom. If the soil is strewn with stones It may bloom for a season, but will soon wither and die. If the soil is sown with the mixture of evil seeds and good, thorns will grow up with the wheat, choke it out, and it again will not produce fruit. But if the soil of the individual is fertile, and made so ultimately by the Holy Spirit, it produces fruit. 30, 60, and 100 fold. Kingdom individual is realized In a powerful, redemptive way when fertile soil is present in the heart of a sinner who has been saved by grace and recognizes his only hope of salvation in Jesus Christ, his Messiah and Lord. Secondly, there's kingdom corporate. We've mentioned, illustrated in the parable of the weeds, where we might ask the question, how does the kingdom of God relate to two things happening happening concurrently? Those who are blooming into newness of life who have fertile soil. And those of the wicked, the obstinate, the hard-hearted, and the proud who are growing alongside the wheat in the greater picture of the world, what of them, what of the kingdom related to these realities? Well, we're promised that there will come a day of reckoning upon which time the two will be sorted and bonfires will blaze with eternal judgment when the weeds are finally collected at that day at the reaping season when the angels are dispatched, but there will also be another gathering. And that will be the wheat, the sons of the kingdom, which will be gathered into the barns and will populate heaven and will be the rewards of Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, finally reaped in full in heaven one day. So we have kingdom individual, kingdom corporate. And thirdly, what we considered last week, kingdom trans historical. Perhaps a new word for us to consider, but I couldn't think of a better one. I was scrolling through my online dictionary, lit upon that word, and claimed it as my own. Transhistorical. Trans, you think of transcendent, over, above, uh, more, uh, greater than, exceedingly, prevailing over, subduing, excelling, surmounting, judging. Those are all connotations of that word. The kingdom of God is understood in the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven as not just a kingdom that exists as other kingdoms do as a segment within the greater space-time continuum, but instead a reality that transcends time and history itself. Thus, a question we could ask, or a misguided question would at first be, we might be tempted to ask in our finite minds, conditioned by our own finitude, what or how does the kingdom of heaven fit into history? How does the kingdom of heaven fit into history? How many of us have been tempted to ask this question? Given the landscape of our culture today, you might interpret the news as giving us plenty of evidence that we live in a decrepit era. There's all kinds of commentary that is woefully recognizing great sin, metastasizing and growing around us in our society. I heard one pundit say last week that we live in the most politically depraved climate that America has ever known, for instance, and I'm inclined to agree with him. So the question naturally occurs to us in this time that we're born in this particular dispensation, how does the kingdom of God fit into history? Well, I'm telling you we learned last week that that is indeed the wrong question. The right question is this, how does history fit into the kingdom of God? Because the kingdom of God is transhistorical. The purposes that God has planned to execute within time, He planned before time and will continue beyond time. And though we live in the conditions of our finitude, as I mentioned, people who can't quite understand, or may it perhaps even close, that perspective, it nevertheless is true. We mentioned last week in contemplating Kingdom Transhistorical that the mustard seed that grows into a tree whose branches spread to give refuge for the birds of the air and for the beasts of the field across this entire world is a picture that's drawing on the imagery prophetic language of old. There are other trees, you see, that were described, that is, kingdoms that were described as trees this way. In the Old Testament, Assyria, Egypt, even Babylon. We think of Daniel 4, Ezekiel 17, Ezekiel 30 and 32. But what did they all have in common? Though they spread for a time their branches of influence over whole nations and peoples, Though in their empirical intimidation they subdued peoples this globe over and even empires since them, again I ask, what do they all have in common? Every other kingdom, they were cut down. Even now, the word of God says the axe is laid to the root of the tree. And one application of that judgmental reckoning coming through the gospel is that no authority, no kingdom, no tree as it were, will ever grow to exceed the tree. The mustard seed that sprouts and it is in a growth pattern now but eventually grows to transcend history and at such time as God is pleased there will be a reckoning where every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father and everyone will recognize though it's sometimes hard for us now in our sin-blinded finite state all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to him. Kingdom transhistorical. The greater context of this gospel also informs us that the personal implications of kingdom treasure, how valuable the kingdom is, reaches into our heart as well as we can greater realize it by understanding the external effects of the kingdom as well. I mention this introduction to say this. The order of the parables given to us in Matthew chapter 13 conditions us and is prerequisite for understanding the value of the kingdom of God. That is, upon considering this three-stage escalation of the amplitude of the kingdom of God from the individual to the corporate to the transhistorical, we are now prepared to assess its value via these two parables, the hidden treasure and the pearl of great price. And thus, when we turn to... Matthew thirteen forty four and 45, and read the following. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And again, verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. We understand a deeper meaning in its context of the value of the kingdom of God. It is a value that touches us and has to necessarily, if we are a believer, touch us personally. But it also is a valuable that has incalculable implications. A value, indeed, that cannot be measured by anything, any other power, any other reality, any other standard. The greater context of the gospel, as I mentioned, informs us of personal implications of the value of the kingdom of God. We'll explore a few of those Calvin duly notes in this quote, the excellence of the heavenly life is not perceived indeed by the sense of the flesh and yet we do not esteem it according to its real worth unless we are prepared to deny on account of it all that glitters in our eyes. This touches to the personal. I'll read that again. The excellence of the heavenly life is not perceived indeed by the sense of the flesh that is with our physical eyes and yet we do not esteem it and it's re- according to its real worth unless we are prepared to deny on account of it all that glitters in our eyes. My paraphrase of this quote, we do not perceive the kingdom of God by worldly means, yet our attitude toward worldly means necessarily shows we understand its value. You remember the phrase from the song... The things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of your glory and grace. A precious line indeed that illustrates the personal value of the kingdom of God. Eclipses, casts a shadow on, and grows in our estimation as we grow in Christ as to its value. A heading for you for four points this morning. The heading is appraising the value of the kingdom of God by weighing The following appraising the value of the kingdom of God by weighing first the content of the kingdom itself, secondly, the context of the discourses to date that would be the sermons of Jesus. First one, Great Sermon on the Mount, 5 through 7, chapters 5 through 7, second one, Matthew 10, third one, Matthew 13, and thirdly, the contrast to worldly concepts, and fourthly, the comparisons in this parable or these parables we just read. So content, context, contrast, and comparisons. Appraising the value of the kingdom of God first, let's consider weighing the content of the kingdom itself. I read an essay this week by Rittervoss, a theologian from somewhere, I forget. Uh, It's a great essay. It will be posted on a website, probably more meaty than anything I'll have to present to you today. But it's a great message to augment this theme. The kingdom of heaven is difficult to describe because it necessarily transcends anything in our experience. Though language is used in the Bible to describe the kingdom of God that compares it to other kingdoms that we can know in time, they of course fall somewhat short in describing the scope and parameters or the amplitude of the kingdom of God. Therefore, understanding and really getting our finger on the concept of the kingdom of God is indeed difficult, but I'm going to take a stab at it this morning. I'll take a stab at it by reminding you of some elements of kingdom and proposing a working definition. But first of all, consider the discourse themes themselves in the book of Matthew. In the book of Matthew, chapters 5 through 7, you remember it begins with the Beatitudes. It moves through Jesus Christ declaring that He is the fulfillment of the law. The law. Jesus says in that section, Verily I say unto you, and he is assuming law, giving, making, authority. He is speaking not on behalf of God, but as God. He is the arbiter of the law, as it were, of his kingdom. He goes on to describe the parameters of holiness that are expected of the Almighty in his perfect, in his perfect nature and goodness. Do you remember the standard is raised so that anger is equal to murder and lust is equal to adultery and so on. We move through the Sermon on the Mount and we find that not just the things that we legislate, the things that we permit and forbid teach us as to the seat of authority, but also the spiritual disciplines, the things that we promote, even our fasting and our prayer and our almsgiving, they must be accountable to holiness as well. You see a comprehensive scope of Jesus' ultimate authority declaring, if you will, the constitution of the kingdom of God. And what does he say in closing at the end of Matthew chapter 7? He says there will come a day of reckoning where two types of people will show to be. The lawless and those who are built on the rock, Jesus Christ. The lawless will hear these ominous last words. Depart from me, I never knew you. But those who are later described in these parables as the wheat and the sons of the kingdom will be built on their rock, Jesus Christ, and they will stand every storm of life and indeed stand the storm of ultimate judgment and reckoning. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, we have, I think, aptly titled The Constitution of the Kingdom of God. So when we think of the content, what is the kingdom We think of Christ's ultimate law-making, law-giving, and also holiness-making authority. We cannot in ourselves, because of our nature, keep the law. But Christ has both the power to keep the law and in His atoning death to justify us and to transmit or to impute to us His law-keeping record so that we ourselves are now justified and now members in good standing of the kingdom. That leads me to elements and definition. Well, before I move there, discourse theme and discourse chapter 1, Constitution. Discourse number 2, Commission in Matthew 10. Jesus is demonstrating his authority by delegating and commissioning his servants to go out, to preach the message of the kingdom. And then we have the theme in Matthew 13 of comparisons, explanation of the kingdom of God given by analogy in parable. So those are the discourse themes that give us something of an idea or the concept of the kingdom as we meditate on them and consider them. But secondly, we have in the idea of kingdom, the elements of a kingdom and a definition I'll propose. The elements of the kingdom, if you remember, I've reduced them to four for my own benefit and study. And I want to give them to you again. When you think of kingdom... Think of sovereign, the king, the ruler, the ultimate authority. Think of subjects, those who are under his rule and authority. Think of realm, the reach or extent of his kingdom, its borders, if you will. And think of law, the standards of righteousness and obedience that he demands by his sovereign and powerful right. Four elements of kingdom, sovereign, subjects, realm, and law. And now, to understand the kingdom of God, we go to Scripture and ask the question, who is the sovereign? We ask the question, who are the subjects? What is the reach of the realm and what is the law? And all of these questions are answered in Scripture and they are answered comprehensively so. The sovereign is the God, the triune God of Scripture, the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, revealed in a revelatory way, in a special and unique, powerful way through His inscripturated Word. And even in creation itself, we see the sovereignty of God revealed who are the subjects well indeed it's everyone but there are two kinds of subjects members in good standing and members under judgment all must answer to the sovereign one has only his feeble attempts and works to show to justify him which will prove ineffective and instead will only incur hell itself the second has the blood of jesus christ to show to present before the father and therefore they are members in good standing before the sovereign the realm We detailed that last week. There is nothing that stands outside of the realm of the kingdom of God. It is absolutely coextensive with the universe and beyond if it could be said. There is nothing that lies outside of the dominion, the ultimate reign, rule, and authority of Almighty God. And then finally, His law. What is His law? His law is His righteous precepts that are by definition His character, His nature, His justice, His goodness, His holiness, His beauty, His power, His truth, and everything that the Word declares and makes manifold testimony to us that He is. So a working definition for the kingdom of God. I'm not satisfied with this, I don't think, as a comprehensive definition of the kingdom, but perhaps it will be helpful for the purposes of our message this morning. The kingdom could be described in one way, perhaps the glory of the sovereign God throughout the reaches of his realm, through his distinguished works, and his loyal subjects. So when the kingdom of God is described to us, and we are to behold and to understand the kingdom, according to these pictures and illustrations, what are we in part at least understanding? We are to take from this message something of the glory of the sovereign God, an understanding of the glory of the sovereign God throughout the reaches of his realm, through his distinguished works and his loyal subjects. And so in that definition, you can look carefully and find sovereign subjects, realm, and law. Now, when we consider the kingdom, perhaps the most underestimated element of those four sovereign subjects realm and law is indeed law itself today the church is misguided and confused as to the sovereign dictates of the almighty how does law and does law play a role in the life of a believer well these parables here help us understand for instance in verse 41 we read the son of man will send his angels and will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin, and all law breakers. So what do we find there? We find that in the perfect kingdom ideal, every cause of sin which is falling short of the law will be removed. And when every cause of sin is removed, who remains? Only the law keepers. Who is shunned, who is judged, who is exiled? All the law breakers. What is their destiny? Well, they are thrown into a fiery furnace, verse 42. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But, 43, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. What will that shining look like? Well, certainly a reflection of God's character worked in and through us back to Him. And even in growing measure in our sanctification in this life, a transformation to the standard of Christ by increasing degree, where we shine more, where we conform more, and indeed by application, keep the law more, enabled to do so based not on our own strength, but by the Spirit of God working through us because of Christ's work in us and the regeneration that has take, taken place in our heart. So, really, in these elements of kingdom, we recognize that they are incalculable in their value, and they are indispensable, and these parables are meant for us, us to understand who is the sovereign and our role and duty as subjects, which means that we come in conformity with His will and His command and His decree in a loyalty kind of way. And thus, the glory of the sovereign God reaches to His realm in part through the loyalty of his subjects. When we proclaim the word and live his truth and walk in obedience, as the book of Romans says, the aim of Paul's epistle is the obedience of the faith among the nations, we begin to testify to our sovereign by loyally keeping his word, loyally following his precepts, loving, meditating, proclaiming, and obeying the law of God. So what are we saved unto? Well, we are saved unto glorious obedience, law-keeping, and kingdom proclamation. Imagine how much greater a sovereign is glorified by his loyal subjects. Now, you can get a tyrant through coercion, the sword, and ultimate fear to control his people just about their every move. This has happened throughout history. But what glory does that sovereign receive? Well, that sovereign receives... Glory to a degree, but it is limited. There are no subjects under those conditions in their right mind who serve Him joyfully. But instead, they serve Him out of dread and out of the sword hanging over their head and out of a sense of absolute terror. our world is very familiar with these kind of law ideas. But how much greater is a sovereign whose law is, yes, one that's unchanging and immutable, yes, to be reckoned with, but who presents to his subjects by his power law-keeping power, who now love and worship him in spirit and in truth and do so by keeping and proclaiming his commands. I'm telling you, this is the picture of a happy kingdom. When you read in the Scriptures, you go back to the Golden Age of Israel, the best days that they knew, humanly speaking, Solomon's wisdom was exonerated, glorified, manifest, and it attracted people from, from all around, even distant lands. Kings and dignitaries came to see. And what did the Queen of Sheba say? Happy are all your subjects. Undoubtedly wise are you. And there's a picture there of a kind of kingdom in small part that Jesus perfectly fulfills. Happy are all your subjects, who for the joy set before them, they go and they find this treasure hidden in the field, happily serving the Lord. And thus, in the classical reformed construct of the law, we have its three purposes, and one of them is indeed a vision for worship. Those precepts of Scripture allow us to know gloriously how to obey and to worship our sovereign. To live as joyful, happy, engaged faithful, loyal subjects to God Almighty. And so we see here in the content of the kingdom itself, something of its value. This is a comprehensive scope here that is spoken of. This is a kingdom that includes all of these elements and probably a few I forgot or haven't thought of yet. This is a kingdom that far eclipses and surpasses the best of Solomon's realm and any other kingdom ever known. But this is a kingdom indeed populated, I pray, by Christ's blood, you and me who gloriously extol and magnify and bring the glory of our king to the furthest reaches that he allows us to go in his realm so that he may be seen as the great champion, the beloved king, the one who is powerful, yes, retains judgment at his power, but also has extended through us in his mercy a way to be in right standing with him. Secondly, the context of the discourses to date. So we're praising the value of the kingdom of God by weighing first the content of the kingdom itself, and secondly, let's consider the context of the discourses to date. What do the other discourses have to say, briefly, about the kingdom of God and its value? Well, turn with me a moment back to Matthew chapter 6, and there's value language that is given within this chapter to help us to understand aspects of the kingdom of God and their worth. The first point I would give you under the context of discourses to date is provisional and intrinsic value. There's a concept of what is a provisional value and an intrinsic value. I'll well, expand on here in a moment. Let's read chapter 6, verse 19 and following. Christ says in his first great sermon in Matthew, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He goes on and says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. Notice verse 24. No one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other. Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. He goes on to say, be anxious for nothing. Isn't life more than clothing? And then we have this key verse, this central theme in verse 33. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. You see the priority of value there? what is supposed to hold our attention, be the compelling and attractive aspect of our newfound life in Christ? Two things, the kingdom of God and His righteousness. These are to be intrinsically valuable to us. In the Scriptures also, in speaking as to relationships, we mentioned that there's a hierarchy of loyalties. We see confusing that language at first glance, sometimes in Scripture, where we see Jesus hear him declaring, unless you hate your father and mother, you cannot be my disciple, things like that. It's the same idea there. It's the kind of idea that has a hierarchy in place. In other words, the intrinsic relationship, the most valuable, substantial, foundational, and central relationship is our relationship to Christ. And only when the other relationships in our life are subordinate to and serve to glorify that relationship are they indeed then sanctified and good ones. And so it is with any other value assessment in the Christian life. We are to intrinsically value the kingdom of God, everything it represents that I mentioned to you before, His glory ultimately, and through these other ways of understanding, the sovereignty of his realm and his law, and we his loyal subjects. But we are, too, in assessing value to anything, keep the things of the kingdom of God is our intrinsic value standard. And everything else is provisional to that end. Consider a moment, by brief, briefly by illustration, how much does a square piece of paper, eight inches long by two and a half, really give you? How, what is that worth to you? I mentioned a uh, term that paper money used to be referred to as shin plaster. Because paper money has no intrinsic value, they used to say around Civil War time, all it's good for is a Band-Aid, shin plaster. Put plaster on it, you heal the wound. It has no intrinsic value. Yeah, we do keep money, and if we found a 50 laying on the street, you better believe I, along with anyone in this room, would put it in our pocket and save it for later. Why? Well, not because that money has intris- intrinsic value but it certainly has provisional value because we can trade that for something we intrinsically value so that paper money serves as a means to an end. That's an illustration to describe Christ is saying everything in your life is to be a means to my end. Whether it's wealth or things in this life that we crave, notoriety, fame, relationships, comfort, security, and any way you know in any of the value schemes that we consider uh, attractive in this life all of them are to be are are to be provisional toward the end of intrinsic value in Christ the kingdom of god is the intrinsic value standard for the believer everything else in life is provisional everything else in life is a negotiation it's like paper money it's like transportation it facilitates that end So we ask ourselves, are we getting too distracted by riches? How do I know if there's thorns growing alongside the wheat? Well, put yourself up to that standard. Are these things intrinsically valuable to me? Do I value them because of themselves? Or are they a means to an end to glorify God? And I would encourage you, when you put yourself under the searching lens of the Holy Spirit, into the inner recesses of the heart... To explore and to convict you of your own values structure in your life and your motivation. To hold every concept of value in your own heart accountable to that standard. And notice how many false notions, ideas, idols, and even theologies are overthrown by this notion. There's a lot of controversy in some talk. And I'm, and I'm glad there's bold proclamation against it now. The so-called prosperity gospel movement. Well, why is the prosperity gospel so heretical as some claim, and I agree with them? Well, this idea I just propounded to you is the answer. The prosperity gospel declares to us that Christ exists for our glory. And the gospel is a means to our end. And great human flourishing is the ultimate end of what God has done and provided. And that He exists to give us wealth, notoriety, you know, success at work, a promotion, and whatever else we desire, relationships in the life. And we're so used to this kind of thinking in the consumer-driven culture of America that we often pause, never pause and stop and think about its heretical notion. To make going to church, an affiliation with religion, um, a distant relationship with the Bible and holding to some spiritual truths as just a provisional way to get what we otherwise intrinsically value. I go to church for fellowship, for friends, to get job, to get work, because I have promises that will better me and so on and all of this and that. Ultimately, we are to look into the scriptures and to see that in the construct of the kingdom of God, we are simply called to be loyal subjects, serving at the glory and pleasure of our sovereign, and we are a means to his great end. And we, as the great confession says, when we, uh, do, you know, what is the chief end of man is to glorify him and enjoy him forever, which is just a summary statement of these types of truths, if we walk in a way accountable to that, we will be insulated from trial We'll be joyful when we suffer. We will see that our life can be laid down. It's easier to pick up our cross, and we can do it not with a grimace on our face, but actually with joy. In Matthew 13, if our heart is set on glorifying the Lord, how much easier is it to suffer for His name's sake when we find in that hidden field a treasure? A treasure when found influences this hypothetical man here in joy to go and sell all that he has and buy that field. You see, when the rich young ruler came to Christ, he was sad. Why? Because he intrinsically valued his riches and he provisionally valued Christ. But if that young man had come to Christ on different terms, if he had known the extent of his sins, if he had known his future in his unregenerate state, and the Holy Spirit had changed the soil of the condition of his soul, then it would be in in reverse. He would intrinsically value Christ and provisionally value riches. And he would count a joy to sell all he had and follow the Lord. So what if you have riches? Well, if you have them, it's not necessary that you ultimately sell everything at the drop of a hat. What is necessary is you see them as a provisional way to glorify God. And that is a way to redeem a high standard of living, to be frank and honest with you. But if it gets in the way, the best thing you could do is liquidate all that idolatry and reduce yourself to a place of accountability to the value of the kingdom of God. Now, there's further contextual message along these lines in the discourses of Matthew. There's another reference point that's interesting to me in Matthew chapter 7, again in the first discourse. This one uses the term pearl again, and we recognize the language from Matthew 13 and the parables we're considering today. Notice in Matthew 7, 6, the admonition from Christ to us is, do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. It's almost an isolated parable or a wise saying there, a proverb, if you will. Do not give dogs what is holy, And do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. We've already identified intrinsically our value standard is Christ. And this message lets us know, this admonition lets us know, we are never to compromise Christ for any of the pressures or demands around us today. Those who would ask you to compromise, to minimize, to denigrate, to sell out your Savior are described in this passage as pigs and dogs. That is striking and shocking, yet thoroughly biblical language. Why? Because of what is absolutely valuable. Now, this language is not hyperbole. It is purposeful. Can a dog really know the difference? Let's say there's a pile of gold and a pile of alpo, and he's running there at the end of a hungry day. Which pile will the dog go to? Obviously the alpo. Which pile would you go to? Well, if you're in your right mind, the gold, especially these days, you cash that in and get a lot of semi-loads of Alpole, feed your dog ad infinitum. So the idea here is you have unreasoning beasts who cannot distinguish. They cannot tell, discriminate between value and things that perish with the using. And we are those indiscriminate beasts when we do not recognize what the kingdom of God describes, what the Bible describes as kingdom value for what it is. If we do not hold to Jesus Christ as intrinsic value, we are like unreasoning beasts. We are like Nebuchadnezzar, who valued himself over the king of heaven and quite literally lost his reasoning and it returned to him at the point when he said, the kingdom of heaven rules. But so long as he thought that power over men was intrinsically worth his every effort and goal and aim in life, he was like a pig. He was like a dog, trampling on the divine and denigrating the holy. But at such time as he valued what Christ said is precious, his reasoning returned to him, and he again had pearls, pearls at his disposal. There's a protective and proprietary implication in the context of Christ's admonition as to the kingdom of God. We are to protect the things of the Lord and guard them because they are holy, just like you would any other treasure. No one apologizes for the AR-15 and the heavy stock of ammo when you have marauding bands who would steal your wife and kids and your gold stock if they could get their hands on it. There is quite, and rightly so, in the eye of the beholder, a proprietary and a protective instinct to guard what he considers worthy of safekeeping. And so it ought to be in our souls. Do not let any other claim, any other entity, person, idea, or anyone, even person very close to you, trample on the things of beauty and grace and glory. Instead, you are to protect them because they are everything to you. Finally, the economic implications in Matthew chapter 10 under context of discourses is interesting. There's a whole new way of thinking about money that we see here, and briefly I'll just read in Matthew 10 verse 8, Jesus commands, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons, you receive without pain, give without pay. Acquire no gold nor silver nor copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, nor two tunics, nor sandals nor staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town you enter... Find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. And so we see even in our interaction, and even and as it relates to the kingdom of God, we are to hold the economic exchange accountable so that we are careful to say in our ministering, in our speaking, that Jesus Christ is more valuable than the dollar. And we serve ultimately Him and not men, and so on. So in the context of the discourses, we can learn a lot about kingdom priceless, about Appraising the value of the kingdom of God by weighing these things. Point number three. Appraising the value of the kingdom of God by weighing, thirdly, the contrast to worldly concepts. We've already done this somewhat in our discussion. We've discussed a few things that the world considers worthy of our attention and our value. But there's a few more in the immediate context, notes of context, or, that are helpful to us to help to understand the value of the kingdom of God. And the first one is the demographic to whom Jesus was speaking. Jesus says in Matthew 13, now getting back to our main text and its context in verse 36, we see who he was speaking to at this point when he says, when it's recorded, then he left the crowds and went into the house and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And then he answered, So originally, Jesus was speaking to multitudes in a crowd. Every preacher likes to speak to a crowd, I'm sure, in his flesh. But Jesus saved the best of his proposition for a precious few, an elect few, certainly. The disciples, we mentioned this before, referred to a previous message, Secrets of the Kingdom, that illustrates the difference between those to whom the parable was explained and those to whom the parable was proclaimed. In verse 10, for instance, then the disciples came and said to him, Why do you speak in parables? And He said to them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom. Later, verse 36, again it indicates he's speaking to the disciples at this point, and it's within this context, the demographic of disciples only, that we get these parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hid in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field again. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls one finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. And this perhaps illustrates to us in the demographic of the hearers that a precious few will ultimately realize the worth of the kingdom of heaven. In this context, it was the disciples. It was the disciples alone. And this often is something exhortational we need to hear when the things we value and hold close are so easily misunderstood by friends and family members in the world around us. We need to be content to hold those things tightly as value and to live, for a short time anyway, as strangers and aliens among a people who do not realize why we're throwing what they consider a perfectly good life, goals, ambitions, success, and whatever, away only that we might know Christ, whatever your particular application the Spirit might lead you towards. I was listening to a message earlier this week, or really a a summary on a podcast, and this guy was saying uh, he had heard in a message a great question to ask of yourself and others that would indicate where you stand related to these ideas. And it's simply this. Search your heart for a moment and ask yourself this question. Is Jesus precious to you? Is Jesus precious to you? If that question tugs at your heart, there is indeed perhaps within your soul a reassuring sense of affinity with things of true value. Jesus died and extends His blood to those upon whom upon their salvation consider Him precious. When Paul is writing to the Corinthians, what does he say? He says, the things that I used to value are now lost. It says in Philippians. But new things are gained to me now. So I press on for the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. In Second Corinthians, he describes the earthly condition. The old things we used to value as nothing but a decrepit clay pot whose very decay is strategic so that the value, the treasure inside might shine through so that the world might see that the surpassing value is Christ. Jesus was precious to Paul. Is Jesus precious to us? In contrast to worldly concepts, Jesus must be precious to his people. We see that Jesus was precious to just a few when he was walking this earth. And we sometimes think, boy, if we could see him here today and have this whole proliferation of the same type of miracles as in the book of Acts, we would all of a sudden get an entire nation that would consider Christ precious again. But don't be too sure. This is a situation that involves the heart, the secret level, and the intangible work of the Holy Spirit that causes a complete change in your values so that Jesus is precious to you. Secondly, in contrast to worldly concepts, there is an idea of kingdom that's very familiar to us, demonstrated in politics all around us. And often our allegiance to the kingdom of God puts us in conflict with these kinds of authorities. We have an example of it right here in the context as we read into chapter 14. Listen to the conflict and contrast to worldly authorities and service to the kingdom of Jesus Christ that was drawn to an impasse or that led to an impasse between John the Baptist and Herod himself. Verse 1 of chapter 14. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard about the fame of Jesus, and he said to his servants, This is John the Baptist. He has been raised from the dead. This is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. For Herod had seized John and bound him and put him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. Verse 4, key verse. Why did Herod do this? Verse 4, because John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. And though he wanted to put him to death, he feared the people. And we continue to read, and he indeed was at the wish of relatives. John the Baptist was put to death under these circumstances. Ultimately, John the Baptist gave his head because he preached the truth of the kingdom of God to a kingdom, to a king who is not in submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. It was not lawful for Herod to have the wife that he chose. It was breaking God's law, and the prophet held him accountable, just like Nathan did to David, just like Amos did to the kingdom of old, just like every prophet and every true confessing believer in Jesus Christ has done through the ages. They've lived their life, they've proclaimed the truth in such a way to hold every law structure accountable ultimately to the law of God. This is indeed a contrast to worldly concepts. In these days, we live in an era and in a land and in a worldview that says whatever the government says by default then makes it right. I'm telling you, the Word of God is ultimately and always right. And it is never to be subjugated to the rule of the land. Instead, indeed, the opposite is true. Where does law come from? Law comes from God, the lawgiver. There's no other source of law. There was a man who questioned Newt Gingrich. I'm not afraid to call out these names from time to time because they're very popular, prominent, political figures in our day. And he was asked directly by a man that I respect, where does law come from? And when pressed, he could give no answer outside of this universe of the origin of transcendent law. What is that man? He's an atheist. He's a humanist. He does not believe in a lawgiver. Ultimately, there is no law outside what the people collectively determine. If that story is in fact a representation where his heart is at, he must be opposed along with Herod because ultimately that's where the issue lies. There is no law over and beside. There is no other gods before me from Old Testament to New. And thus the contrast to worldly concepts often puts us at odds with those around us. This same man, his name is uh, Joe Moorcraft, when he grills candidates, he asks them two questions. The first, I've already given you, where does law come from? And then he lets them stumble over that for a while. And then the second one he asks, they really trip on, how will you represent the crown rights of Jesus Christ in Washington? How will you, sir, represent the crown rights? How do you plan to represent the crown rights of Jesus Christ in the state house? the county commissioner's office, and at Washington. Is that an appropriate question, given the truth claims of the word of God? I submit to you, absolutely. But you see the contrast to worldly concepts that this will put us in. But nevertheless, this is true, and this is the word of God, and we must recalibrate our standards of thinking to its immutable measure and reject and renounce anything that uh, uh, that, that would compromise Christ ultimately. Finally, there's an opinion poll of Jesus' own friends and neighbors, something of an opinion poll that we see in verses 53 through 58. And in this instance, even though this is Jesus Christ, even though he's doing mighty miracles, these people are obstinate of heart. And they ask him questions like, or ask themselves questions like, where did this man get this wisdom and mighty works? They took offense at him in verse 57, saying a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And Jesus, he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. And this is a reminder to us that although the word of God, particularly in Romans and throughout the scriptures, tells us that even in creation itself, the kingdom of God is visible to all in evidence, it remains hidden to most in significance. These people saw what Jesus did. They saw his mighty works. They did not understand the significance of that the Messiah had come and who he was. Why was this the case? It was the case because the kingdom of heaven, verse 44, is like a treasure hid in a field, which a man found and covered up. But in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. And that treasure hidden in the field is unobserved to most. And in the picture, you imagine thousands of footsteps and pathways going over that field. And no one's willing to give the price that the realtor wants for it, they'll wait for a buyer's market until the day a man stubs his toe on a conspicuous-looking box. It has an antique-looking brass corners. I imagine, so he gets out a shovel and begins to dig. And you imagine it. We've all thought of what would it be like to find buried treasure in the backyard. You begin to shake as you finally open the lid and find it filled with a stash of gold beyond your wildest dreams. And though it was in a field that was going for 1500 bucks to today's standards, there was inside that field buried an inestimable treasure of great worth. But there are very few that find it. Though Jesus Christ himself preached to his own people, and the evidence of who he was was available even to their eyesight, even as nature itself testifies to the reality of God and his creative power, yet these evidences do not necessarily communicate to us its significance, their significance. That's something the Holy Spirit must do. So worldly concepts will come up with other reasons to avoid, to deny, to reject, and to vilify Christ. But we are the privileged few, if you know him today, who have found that secret treasure in the field. Finally, this morning, appraising the value of the kingdom of God by weighing the comparisons in this parable. Comparisons in this parable could be listed as three things, hidden riches, trained eye, and then teaching treasure in verses 51 and 52. I've mentioned already something of the picture of hidden riches. But I think verse 40, fifty. I'm sorry, 44 relates to regeneration. It is as though we stumbled upon Jesus Christ. It's not as if we went out and systematically eliminated all possibilities and found the truth. No, it dawned on us like a miracle one day, walking through our regular hell-bent life, and our toe is stubbed on Jesus Christ, we repented and believed. The second parable seems to indicate a sanctification context. Again, the kingdom of heaven, in verse 45, is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. And we see here the identity of the man who pursues the treasure is now coupled with the treasure itself. The merchant identifies with the treasure. And so after we come to Christ... We become like merchants. We identify with the treasure. And now it is right and proper for us to become experts in the word of God, to search and to seek and to exhaust its pages if, if we could, to find out who Christ is and to behold him in his glory. This merchant, he went out on finding the pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So kingdom or the treasure of the kingdom of God is compared in two ways. One is a situation where you stumble upon it by the grace of God. And secondly, a sanctification context where you make it your chief vocation, if you will, ambition. You set your affections upon it. And now with diligent and deliberate and rigorous and occupational and dedicated seeking, you make the kingdom of God your chief end, the things of the Lord. And I pray in taking in this message, it would be a small installment in that direction. But take the word of God this week in your times of study and in your times of sharing with your families as further uh, obedience in this regard as a merchant in search of fine pearls, going out and looking for that pearl of great value and then selling all you have to behold it. And finally, what is the response the application, when we have truly apprehended the treasure, which should move us to be a scribe. Verse 51 and 52 we read, Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes. Jesus said to them, Therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house, and notice this language, who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. So the awakening to the reality and the growing understanding of the treasure of the kingdom of God the value of the kingdom of heaven realized when it's realized in the heart of a believer it will be demonstrated in the instruction of others you are to take this and share it what is the standard of biblical meaning standard of biblical realization i've asked myself that question i'm sorry the standard of biblical learning standard of biblical realization We are equipped to then teach. So digest the glories of the kingdom in such a way so as to make you more able to share them with others, whoever the Lord puts in your path. Finally, in closing this morning, turn to Colossians chapter 2 once again. In the apostolic interpretation and declaration of concepts like these, we have a glorious summary statement of the value of the kingdom of heaven from the words of the Apostle Paul, when he writes to a church like ours, reading again what we open this service with in chapter 2, verse 2 of Colossians, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Reading again, that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. That's us, church. To reach, to, the, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. He is our treasure. Believers in whom in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And in this glorious passage, we see indeed courage, unity, value, security, understanding, mystery, hidden treasure. All these concepts, all these pictures are bound and found together in Christ himself. My closing question and application. Do other objects of your appraisal serve the greater good and worth of the kingdom of heaven? Or are they in subordinate values? unnecessarily competing with your affections. It is my prayer and I hope all of our prayer this morning that the sum total of our value would be intrinsically found in Jesus Christ, our Lord. Let's close in prayer. O Heavenly Father, we come before you humbly. We understand by your declared truth and sovereignty in Scripture that we are indeed your subjects. We serve at your pleasure. Yet you have made us, Lord, able to be in good law, keeping standing with you because of the blood of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And so in him and in him alone we find all of the treasures, the things of knowledge hidden away in you, Christ. I pray that we would love you with all our heart, all our soul, and all our strength. That we would gladly and joyfully sell all and sacrifice anything, that we are tempted to assess intrinsic value too that does not represent the kingdom of heaven. I pray that when asked the question at any given time, we might, is Jesus Christ precious to you? I pray that we might sincerely say, yes. And again, I say, yes and amen. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.